Good morning. It is seven o'clock on the dot, the seventh of August. Uh, so that's seven eight twenty nineteen. So we're seven eight twenty nineteen. You're in studio with Idwin. Rob <laughs> and Jess. Sorry, guys, that was really weird. Yeah, like, was. like, let's name call. I was like, are you going to say it or are we? <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> no. um, yeah, you're in studio actually with us. I mean, you're not in studio. You're listening in. I always say you're in studio. And it's interesting because we have these little quirks in radio, which you're not supposed to say. So you're not supposed to say you're in studio or you're not supposed to say um, welcome back because, you know, you guys are listening the whole time. It's mm. actually us who leave the mic. <laughs> so there's all these weird, like, little traps. Things you're not supposed to do. Yeah. But we, we do them Still anyway. Do we do them anyway. Exactly. Uh, how's your week been? Okay. I was yeah. just saying before, I honestly cannot remember what I did yesterday because my week's just been so busy. Oh. But I don't even know with what. Oh. Yeah, we're all uni kids, aren't we? At this point, yeah. yeah. So it's all it's all kind of um, we're just getting we're just getting through the week. <laughs> Caffeine and all. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Any like art or anything like that taken? Um, I spent the week researching Fisherman's Bend, which has been interesting. The the, the many many decades and hundreds and thousands of years of history, and it's interesting because it's had like a lot of different things go on throughout its life. Like obviously there was the really strong indigenous history. Um, and then there was a period where it was like a quarantine for a oh. lot of different things because wow. it was so remote and isolated. Um, and then, then there was this interesting moment when GM Holden moved in and then like the number of people just kind of dropped besides GM Holden. And then now it's kind of div- sort of becoming a bit more mixed again. So yeah, that was my week. Absolutely. Um, now guys, I've just realized we forgot the acknowledgements. So we'd just like to quickly start that, um, and just say that Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wandry and Burrung people of the Kulin Nation. Um, we pay respect to their elders past, present and emerging. And we acknowledge their continued resilience, the First Nations people, in the face of ongoing colonization and settlement. And we recognise sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. All right, so as we said, we've had rather boring weeks. We're going to hit the uh, <laughs> breakfast show intro and then maybe come in with some news, maybe some alternative news, mm. all that. All right. This is 3CR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. And again, welcome back to Wednesday Breakfast. We can't have Wednesday Breakfast without the intro. Yeah, no, you can't. You can't, absolutely. Um, Are you cool, guys, cool if we kind of head into some alternative news? I think so. Yeah, Yeah. all right. Great. Um, so just some things happening more recently. So yesterday there was a big Extinction Rebellion event up in Brisbane. So the, um, they're calling it sort of their sort of new kind of, uh, events or sort of actions that they've been undertaking called Rebellion Days. So this was the first, um, Extinct uh, Rebellion Day facilitated by Extinction Rebellion. Oh, okay. And what, as a result, happens that the Queensland police arrested and charged 56 people during yesterday's climate protests in Brisbane. And so there's been a lot of concern that the, the police response was far too heavy-handed in their response. Um, the police even saying it had been some time since they'd arrested so many people at one time in the city. But, you know, these things are getting louder and louder for a reason, because there is a climate emergency. So... I think it'll be interesting to see, you know, hopefully Extinction Rebellion keep on doing a lot of these Extinction Days and seeing what action it starts to have. 
should be really good to see. And is mm. Tilly, I think, was maybe involved in that? Maybe? Um, no, no, Tilly's uh, more of an individual climate activist, but it is interesting looking at the Extinction Rebellion. I mean, we've had them in studio a yeah. few times. Um, and for people who are kind of interested in their next action, um, it will be on this Friday, actually, mm-hmm. at, I believe, 12 o'clock, and it's the University Climate Walkout. So if you're in uni... Sorry, 1 o'clock. If you're in uni in the city or around Victoria, mm. at 1 o'clock on Friday to 4 o'clock, um, there's a university climate walkout, which is basically in front of the State Library, but also if you can organise it with your friends at your university of choice. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, they'll be basically protesting um, the fact that we're going through a climate crisis and Absolutely. we seem to not be doing anything about it. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And speaking on the climate crisis... Um, there are some other points of what's been happening. So there was a report that ocean heat waves have been happening at double the rates than were previously anticipated. So basically, these are long sort of warm spells that can last for months, and the impact of it, you know, kills off coral reefs, kills fish and crustaceans. Um, and so in the original report, they examined 65 ecosystems, and they're expecting that probably about six to seven different ecosystems would have some kind of heat wave every year over seven years, but that number was actually 12 once the uh, seven years actually passed. So they're happening much faster than it was anticipated, which is always scary because it means that the impacts that we've been sort of working towards actually might be a lot worse and probably will be a lot mm. worse. So it's kind of, you know, we can't, take the sort of the numbers that are thrown at us of like you know 1.5 or 2 is you know safe or relatively safe we can't necessarily take that for granted because you know the the numbers actually might not be correct which is completely understandable because science Mm. is pretty hard to especially environmental science is pretty hard to predict um also there's been a lot of reporting just in the last 24 hours about another report that came out about how the estimates the quarter of the world's population lives in extreme water stress so as a result, we might be hearing a lot more about uh, day zeros. I don't know if you were following mm-hmm. what was happening in Cape Town about a year ago. So they were about, I think it's like a week or a month away from literally running out of water as an entire city. Um, and then the drought broke quite quickly after that. But it was getting to the stage of where they were you know, putting really strict water restrictions in and they were going to have to start having people queue up to certain water distribution points and limiting the amount that they could use. They even started publishing people's water use data online to try and shame people who were using too much. Name and shame sort of thing. Yeah. So it got really desperate. Um, And so we might be seeing a lot more of that starting to happen if we're expecting to see more day zeros kind of popping up across the world. Um, The countries that are rated as the most water stressed in the report were Qatar, Israel and Lebanon. Um, But as discussed, I think, last week in one of the interviews, like a lot of these droughts and sort of water shortages and extreme water shortages will lead to a lot more socio-political tensions, mm. um, generally leading to conflicts. So that's also another kind of impact. Um, at the same time, we've seen like huge amounts of water melting in Greenland. I don't, oh. There's been these, like the the amount that's melting is is quite much higher than they're anticipating. Um, but yeah, it's it's scary times in terms of the environment. Um, I was also reading this morning a report that uh, the so the New Star allowance, um, the rate of homelessness has increased quite a lot over the last five years um, with the historically low New Start rate, and that the amount of money being spent in real terms on 
New Start and housing has been at one of its lowest ever. Mm. So there's a lot of calls to sort of reconsider changing this for obvious reasons. Um, but it also ties in, like, we're sort of, so starting to see this sort of more, di- uh, uh, sort of like entrenchment of sort of not being able to sort of get support and get access. So, yeah, that's my alternative news for today. Absolutely. And it was just reminding me of a few other stories. I mean, just on touching on, um, I thought it was really interesting with your, your kind of news segment, touching on the fact that our expectations, our scientific expectations are so out of whack. I mm. mean, last week we had, um, an interview on discussing the three degrees rise and mm. saying that a lot of our expectations are talking about a 1.5 degree rise mm. or on trajectory for a three point degree rise and how, different those two things are. And also how there might be so many more things that we don't anticipate. Absolutely, absolutely. And also I was thinking um, just with the referencing of like losing out on resources and water stress and stuff like that, the fact that isn't it amazing on Monday it was told, we were told that Australia just holds just 28 days worth of fuel imports. Jeez. Did no, you hear that? No, I didn't. ABC reported, um, we, yeah, only 28 days worth of fuel imports, well below the 90-day minimum required for international yeah. Kind of standards, yeah. and um, I love. I actually quite enjoyed the ABC news for this one because it says uh, the. It says rather than buying and storing the required amount of petroleum domestically, Defence Minister Linda Reynolds uh, says Australia is seeking to access America's emergency supplies, <laughs> which I thought was a bit of a call out. Yeah. Like rather than doing the responsible thing, we're just gonna rely. We're gonna d- quickly try and ask for um, for America's emergency supplies. Mm. So pretty pretty damn scary. Yeah, I mean like resilience is a huge issue about mm. like how do you make sure you're able to cope with all these different stresses and challenges and. Absolutely. Increasingly more and more. And also, just hooking in with this week's events, um, with the New Start story, uh, there was um, Ricky Bartels on Q&A this week mm. uh, with her story about New Start. And that was, that, if you guys are wondering, and if you feel like watching Q&A, and it's, about, it's an hour of stress, um, <laughs> but it was quite a powerful question, I thought, and the response was, uh, the response from the Liberal MP at the time was quite a, oh, oh I don't really know how to, to do. answer this. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't been trained for this one. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, not really on alternative news, but on news that we're kind of following, um, and I'll play the sting in a moment, but the Jup Warung um, Heritage Protection Embassy is currently um, in full swing. Mm-hmm. So if you're not sure about this, this is the destruction of sacred trees in Victoria. Mm. And uh, it, it's underway. Uh, log- loggers are starting to destroy these sacred trees and sacred places. Um, and if you want to support, show support. Uh, people, they really need people on the ground. So after Alternative News ends, I will play the sting so they have more information and mm. nicely packaged uh, community announcement. But, um, yeah, I thought I'd just bring that up. Yeah, absolutely. Quickly reference that. Um, Jess, do you have some headlines for us? Yeah, so um, they're not immediate headlines, but um, a few things that I found interesting in the Australian this morning. So Get Up, which is actually an independent movement to build a progressive Australia and bring um, democracy to light, um, they, there's Get Up links of an activist targeting Frydenberg. So Frydenberg, if you guys don't know, is the politician who has been a treasurer of Australia and deputy leader of the Liberal Party um, since 2018. Um, Michael Standle is a the climate activist is challenging Josh Frydenberg's eligibility to sit in Parliament. Um, he donated money to get up and campaigned alongside the left-leaning group ahead of the federal election. This was Michael who did this. Um, he's 
lobbying to get Frydenberg out as he believes that he is illegitimate to be in mm. Parliament. Yeah, mm. that's a big <laughs> I think this also came up. Um, this this came up also in my lecture uh, mm. with the. Uh, AEC controversies so around Gladys Liu's seat and Josh Frydenberg's seat there was a few different I think it was malpractice or at least it's been alleged Mm. malpractice Mm. Um, especially with for example my electorate um, the purple signs which were using Mm. AEC colours Mm. directing uh, Chinese speakers to put number one next to liberals Um, so yeah it'll be interesting to see how this kind of if this this turns into a scandal or or, anything like that yeah yeah Absolutely. Yeah. Anything else on the thing? Otherwise, just news, just sports. News, just uh, Boris's dad makes the Brexit down under. Just oh. <laughs> that's all we've got today. That's all we've got today. Yeah. There's this great book that I want to read about Boris Johnson called "The Follies of Boris Johnson," titled "Nincompoopless." <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's uh, when he it's about when he was mayor, and it's about all these things, these kind of follies that he was really obsessed with building in London. Like there was one pro- proposal for this big garden bridge that was going to cost three hundred million pounds or something. Was the the cable car across the river and all these different things, and it's just talking about like how like yeah like some cities do extravagant things, but sometimes if I mean obviously if they don't have the the kind of the impact that they should be having or sort of mm. generating employment or you know greater bigger things, then like it's just like a complete vanity project and it's just mm-hmm. kind of completely yeah. slamming him. Um, and so prior to all the uh, the votes in in London recently or the UK recently. A lot of people were trying to promote this book, being like, if you want Boris Johnson, read this book. You read understand book. what he is about. <laughs> know what you're getting. <laughs> um, no, it's really interesting. We won't touch too much on British jo- uh, Boris Johnson. <laughs> British Johnson. Because, uh, why? But um, <laughs> it was funny because I remember when the first time I saw him, I went, how would you get elected? Like, mm. no, this is, this is a long time ago when he first kind of entered the scene of politics, or at least, you know, my understanding of it. Mm-hmm. And then he became, he was, um, yeah, brought into prime ministership this year, and I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> it's a common theme of carrying a lot of I know, I know, but I remember yeah. just w- watching him and being like, you wow. are just a complete bumbling idiot. Mm. Like, you just say weird things. Yeah. Or, I don't know if you've seen, he got stuck on a zipline once. Yes, yes I yep, that, yeah. that is a classic photo. That's a great meme photo. Worthy. It's a great photo. Mm. It is a meme photo. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, okay, so we'll just give you a basic rundown of our, kind of our, our show today, yeah. and then we might jump into our first kind of conversation that we're listening to. Um, so, Jess, you're starting us off. Yeah, so today I'm interviewing Sue Roth, who is the Executive Director of Arts Project Australia. We're talking to her about her current exhibitions, and she has a lot to say. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. And Rob? Yeah, so at 7.45, we have Nally Jones, who's the debut author of her recent book, My Father's Shadow. So it's she's an Indigenous young, um, young adult author. So she, it's yeah, it's her first book, so discussing more about that and her inspiration um, behind that. I'm excited about that because I quite like, I like my thrillers and my yeah. gothic and my psychological yeah. stuff. And it's got all of that packaged up very neatly. Yeah. So. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, at o'clock, we're hitting off with about a, a little bit of an environmental story. We've got um, Glenn from 350.org. If you're not sure about 350, uh, 350 is uh, the – basically, it means climate safety or to preserve a livable planet. Scientists have told us that we must reduce the amount of CO2 in our atmosphere from its current level of 400 parts to 350. Mm. Um, parts per it, million. Yeah, parts per million. Thank you. And it is also important to emphasize that this is like their worst case scenario. They're like, yeah. this is what we do to survive, yeah. <laughs> um, not to thrive. So, yeah, uh, we'll be having Glenn on to kind of talk a little bit more about 350 and where it fits in the current environmental movement. 
And then I'm very excited. The last one we're going to have is an IPAN interview with yeah. Annette. Uh, the IPAN is the independent... Now I'm going to get this right this time. Independent Peaceful Australian Network. There we go. And she's going to be talking about um, a kind of a leaked story that came out last week. ABC and The Guardian obtained photos of Australia shipping weapons basically to the Saudi, Saudi Arabian government. Um, and this comes in the light of Saudi Arabia and the US kind of coalition being engaged, or at least the Saudi Arabia definitely administration being engaged in conflict in Yemen. And so a lot of the implications to come out of this is that Australia is now providing weapons to a country that is engaged in some pretty awful conflict. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll be getting Annette on to t- kind of give us a bit more information about that. Um, uh, I have to admit, a few, uh, like a year or two ago, Malcolm Turnbull was standing up in Australia going, you know, Australia's future is in weapons development. And I went, how? And so this sort of story comes as a sad, sad, <laughs> not a surprise, yeah. It comes as just like a sad reminder that that happened. And, <laughs> yeah. yeah, reaffirmation, galvanised, you know, that mm-hmm. our state is actually doing this sort of stuff. Yeah. <sighs> anyway, we're going to play the um, Jap Rorong Sting now, just so you guys can get the information 101 on it, and then we'll come back in with a conversation from the Fair Go for Pensioners conference, which happened earlier in July. We'll be right back. Red alert. Numbers are needed at the Jap Rorong Heritage Protection Embassy camps immediately. Sacred birthing trees on Jap Rorong country need protecting. Over 50 generations have been born on these sites and the birthing trees themselves are 800 years old. These trees are being protected from the Victorian Labor Party's planned highway extension that is set to destroy this sacred dreaming landscape. The cops are coming with eviction orders very soon. The campaign to protect country is led by Japwarang traditional owners who are calling on people from all walks of life for support. You can help by joining traditional owners at the camp on Japwarang country near Ararat or by donating and putting pressure on Daniel Andrews to protect this sacred land. Visit dwembassy.com for more information and updates. No trees, no treaty. And you're listening to 3CR. Now, next off, we're going to be listening back into a conversation that happened a little while ago. This is from the Fair Go for Pensioners Conference, which was held in Melbourne on Thursday, uh, back in July, uh, early kind of July. So we're going to be listening to a conversation or a uh, speech by Jenny Davison uh, on welfare to work, and this will be discussing uh, single mother from the Single Mothers Council on welfare and kind of work policies. And um, just after the pre-record does play, I will give us all the information because they have a lot of like follow-on links. This is Jenny Davison from the Single Mothers Council on Welfare. I'm going to discuss uh, three aspects of single mothers' interactions with welfare-to-work policies. Economic repercussions, the value of their time, and impacts on self-esteem. One in four single mother family households is living below the poverty line, that is the uh, 50% of medium income line, with many more than this living in financial hardship or insecurity. Of any family structure in Australia, single mother families are most likely to be in poverty. Indeed, children in sole parent families are three times more likely to be in poverty than children in couple families. And this is where we see the feminisation of poverty in Australia. Overall, poverty is pretty much divided um, evenly along gender lines. By comparison, um, in this concentration of poverty in single parent families, the vast majority of those in poverty are female-headed. 
Welfare to Work legislation was first passed by the Howard Government in 2006, which moved parents receiving parenting payment onto New Start when their youngest was six for couples and eight for single parents. So that is moving families from what is a pension because they are parenting and they need some financial support onto an unemployed unemployment benefit. Although they are not technically, I mean they're doing, they may not be in paid employment but they are doing work. Um, at the, when this legislation was passed in 2006, families that were already receiving the parenting payment were grandfathered. That is, they were allowed to stay on parenting payment until their youngest child turned 16, which had been the legislation up until that point. It was a Gillard government that passed legislation to remove this protection. And she passed it in October 2012 on the very same day that she made her much lauded speech excoriating Tony Abbott for sexism and misogyny to much to the, de the um, detriment of single mothers. When the legislation was enacted on the 1st of January 2013, with these families having had not even a month's notice, at least 80,000 single parents were moved from Newstart, embedding their poverty and saving the government $70 million. $700 million. $700 million. To give you an impact, an insight into the impact this has, Today, parenting payment single is $768.50 per fortnight, whereas New Start is $595.10 for those with dependent children. So it's a loss of $173 per fortnight, over $86 a week, which has a huge impact on families struggling to pay rent and living expenses. Furthermore, all parents who receive parenting payments, whether single or couple, must meet an activity test when their youngest turns six. So that's a minimum of 15 hours a week of work, study or training. And they have to engage with job active and related programs. So they enter into um, this mutual obligation phase where they have to jump through hoops in order to get their benefits. Welfare to work policies of the past 13 years have had a greater impact on single mothers than any other group. This was starkly demonstrated in the most recent um, ACOS Poverty in Australia report that showed that following the transfer of 80,000 single, um, single parents to Newstart in January 2013, the rate of poverty among unemployed single parents rose from 35% in 2013 to 59% only two years later. So we can see the stark impact of um, this change. These welfare-to-work policies have entrenched the poverty of these families and the effect is felt by the women and their children. It undermines their health, well-being and their future. For the general population, as you may have heard, 51.5% of people on parenting payments and 55% of those on Newstart are living below the poverty line. When trying to raise a family on these benefits, this poverty is exacerbated. The underlying premise of welfare to work policies it, as implemented by both Labor and Liberal governments is that a job is the best form of welfare. There are a number of issues with this. Firstly, this assumes that there are suitable jobs that will accommodate single parents' caring responsibilities, which are non-negotiable. I mean, it's patently untrue, particularly in rural communities and for lower skilled workers. 
Secondly, it implies that a minimum wage job, in particular part-time, is enough to pull these families out of poverty. In fact, driving families off benefits by making it so unworkable or uncomfortable to receive our social support through these sort of mandatory programs simply moves the cost of supporting these families from the federal budget bottom line and onto state and local government and community and philanthropic sector. So those are the, those are the um, funds that, that um, then provide for emergency relief, food bank, school cost assistance and other, and other supports that low-income families rely on when their wages are insufficient to cover the cost of living or, or their, their um, benefits rather. Or no, both. Um, with the raising cost of housing and education, the cohort of those who cannot work their way out of poverty are growing. Thirdly, um, this welfare to work premise completely devalues the unpaid work that these parents are providing. Last year, the Victorian government valued the state's unpaid labour at $2.5 billion. That's half the gross state product. And not surprisingly, women are doing two-thirds of it. Somebody has to look after these children. You can't just leave them out in the garden for the possums to look after while you go and get a job. Finally, it's also a breach of Australia's human rights obligations based upon the International Covenant on Economic and Social Cultural Rights that our government has ratified um, to provide adequate um, social services to citizens in need. So by suspending or breaching payments due to not meeting so-called so mutual obligations in programs such as Job Next, uh, Parents Next and Job Active is a breach of the human rights obligations that the government has agreed to. 43% of single mothers have government benefits as a key source of income. That means they may have work, but their most reliable income is these benefits. And, um, 20, and you know, when they're working, they're pushed into casualised work by the fact that they have to be able to care for sick children, by the fact that they have to be able to pick their children up after school um, and buy school holidays as well. So they often have no paid work during times such as school holidays. 26% of lone mothers uh, lone, do not have any paid leave entitlements. They have no buffer. Um, I am rapidly running out of time, but I wanted to read to you a couple of comments from women who are in some of these programs. So Parents Next, which is a work readiness program for parents with children between six months and up to the age of six. And we, had, uh, we did a survey in, in January and February. One of the comments was, I was told I need to put my, children, my child in childcare, even though I can't afford it. And if I was to put my child in care, I wouldn't be able to afford food for us. I will also be going back to work when my child is at school. But they told me I need to study and I will need to pay for the course myself and I can't afford it. So I don't know what I would, how I would do that. And I have a career to go back to and I don't require any other training. I mean, these are sort of pointless hoops that families are having to jump through. Some of the other causes of welfare um, uh, among single-parent families is the child support debt, which in Australia is at $1.6 billion, and that is actually only the families that are um, going through the formal child support agency, so about that's only half the families, so that is in fact a lot higher. I don't think I'm going to get to be able to talk to you about um, the devaluing of time that comes out of having to 
uh, attend to mutual obligation, undertake activities, um, deal with Centrelink. You all know how time consuming that can be. If you get a de robo debt, well, who's clocking how much time people are investing in trying to prove that the debt's not theirs? You know, the individual, their family, former employers, current employers, uh, finance staff. Um, and of course, the final thing is that um, dealing with um, social services and welfare to work programs has many impacts on self-esteem. So um, these many small hits are called microaggressions, um, maybe small fleeting insults, invalidations or comments that serve to remind low-income single mothers and other marginalised groups that money and power are bound together in ways that disadvantage them. It results in underlying um, systemic power inequalities or approves them, they represent them. And ultimately, women's sense of self-confidence becomes eroded and individually and collectively, single mothers are devalued. And you're listening to 3CR. That was Jenny Davison on welfare and in particular New Start, which is in regards to kind of single mothers and that welfare system, and that was speaking at the Fair Go for Pensioners Conference, which was held back in July. If you'd like to find out more information, you can actually head to the Council of Single Mothers and Their Children's website, which is just uh, csmc.org.au, and uh, you'll be able to find Jenny Davison there. She was speaking out, as I said, about Parents Next. Absolutely, and before our next interview, we're going to play a song. It's by Bibio called mm -hmm. Down to the Sound. Kisses that linger for hours Too hard for covers or windows to be closed The garden noise has penetrated the slumber Without child and either of us It's like there's a halo or a ring of fire So that was Down to the Sound by Bibio. As I was saying, just a nice, calm song. Yeah, nice and calm for your Wednesday morning. Yeah. So now we have the lovely Sue Roff, who is the Executive Director of Arts Project Australia. Arts Project Australia is an organisation that seeks to provide a space for artists with intellectual disabilities. And so what the space does is artists are provided with a space to create and showcase their art via the support they get at the organisation. Today, Sue's going to have a chat to us about the current exhibitions being held at APA. Hey, Sue. Good morning. Morning. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> it's a pleasure. So there's so many exciting things happening at Arts Project Australia, um, which is nothing unusual. Um, you're currently holding the I Think I Split My Tongue exhibition as well as Warren O'Brien's solo art. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you've also got the Fem Affinity Project running too? Well, the Fem Affinity Project on its way to yeah. Devonport in, 
in Tasmania right now and it will be touring the country for the next two years, which is very exciting. Yeah, super so exciting. It, it, yeah, it had its started arts project and um, we won't see it again. For t- well, we will because we'll go and see it wherever it's on. But, yeah, uh, yeah great to have that show running around Australia. Yeah. So, as you know, I have actually seen both of your current exhibitions at your Northcote studio. Can you give the listeners a little insight into those exhibitions for us? Certainly. Um, well, Warren O'Brien is one of our, I guess, mid-career artists who's been practising with us for oh, many years, more than 10 years, and has a very, very distinctive style. His, his show is called Windows, and it's a bit like looking through a window, looking at Warren's abstract work. Many different colours. He he sold out the show before the speeches at the opening, so that was a really amazing thing to happen. So exciting. Yeah. And um, alongside of that is a group show called I Split My I Think I Split My Tongue, and that's based on the words from a work from another artist, Adrian Lazaro, and it's full of a whole range of different artworks that all have some sort of text base to it. So there may be words, there may be letters, um, there's often other things as well, but there are, it's a really diverse and interesting show and something for everyone in that, I think. Mm. Um, how do you guys actually choose your, exhibition, uh, your exhibitions and why, um, like why is it so important for APA to have these artists showcase their art in exhibitions? Well, uh, to get known, I suppose, is mm. the, the main thing. Like, like any artist, um, you can paint away in your studio for years and years, but uh, I think the greatest gratification comes from seeing people see your work in exhibition, appreciate your work, and sometimes even buy your work, which, of course, is is another of our aims, that um, we can help artists earn an income through uh, sale of their work. So uh, we we have a, a constant... Our gallery is only dark in January, and we have a range of different exhibitions every six to seven weeks, and they're all curated. Uh, so it's not just a matter of slapping anything up on the wall. Mm. We um, we have different curators. The, the particular shows that, that are on now, in fact, Warren helped curate his own solo show, and we had one of our staff artists, Tom Pendergast, curated, came up with the idea for I Split My Tongue and submitted it last year, so we planned quite well ahead. And the show after this, these ones is actually going to be curated by an American curator, um, Alex Baker, who worked at the NGV for some time, but, but now lives oh. and works in Philadelphia in the US. And he's, that show is going to be called Yo, We're From Philly. <laughs> and it's a selection of works from Philadelphia paired up with works from Artists from Arts Project Australia. I think it's going to be very colourful and, yeah. and very interesting. So, so amazing, so incredible. Like, I'm in awe of everything you, do, you guys do there. Um, I also wanted to know, how do most of your artists get involved in your organisation? Is there a... No, no, it's not sheer luck. Um, look, there's lots of different ways. There's, because we offer more than just a painting program, mm. and indeed on a Saturday that's a recreational program, people can come and join and just come and paint or draw for two hours. But our professional program that operates during the week offers uh, exposure to a range of different mediums and techniques. So painting and drawing is always the basis, but we also offer printmaking, ceramic sculpture, a professional practice program, um, 
a mixed media program and we offer digital art in some form, whether that be photography or animation or digital imaging as well in um, in the weekly program. So in a way, I guess people find us because it's what they really want to do and those are the the sorts of artists that gravitate towards our project because it's a working environment, it's a, a social environment to a certain extent in that we have up to 40 artists a day working in our enormous studio, but um, they are also offered the opportunity to really develop their practice, work on the things that interest them, and you can see it. We have 140 artists that come over a week, and there's 140 completely different styles of work. Operates a bit like a tertiary art school, yeah. where you, you develop your work, and, and the staff artists are there not to teach, but to facilitate, to mentor, to help guide you on your way. Yeah, because um, from my knowledge, and I don't have a lot <laughs> about this sort of area, but um, a lot of disabled uh, programs for disabled persons are usually really structured and um, the initiatives that are put in place, like there's not a lot of, you know, room for freedom and creative expression and I think that's what defers your organisation from a lot of different other well, organisations. Yes, yes, that's true. I, I mean, I'm happy to say that uh, more and more now, um, the style of, of, of approach that we have in the studio is being adopted because, um, quite simply, it's about people with um, disabilities making choices, their mm. own choices about what, what they want to do and how they want to represent themselves. Um, and we, we find that, that that actually derives the best work ultimately and like any artist, you have to trial and error. You're never going to do the first one might not ever be the perfect one or the one you like. So, you know, the opportunity to try a whole lot of different things or maybe the same thing over and over again until you get it exactly how you want it. Mm, definitely. Um, on another topic, there are actually a lot of initi- uh, initiatives in, within the Australian government, such as the Disability Investment Group, um, which was said to estab- be established to explore funding ideas from the private sector to help families and people with disabilities access greater support. Um, do you see organisations like uh, initiatives and organisations like this in the Australian government and out being a big benefit to you and other organisations helping disabled persons and their families or is the funding suitable for you guys? Look, I think aspirationally it's suitable Mm. and I have to start by saying the NDIS is probably the biggest game changer for people with disabilities that's Mm. ever happened in Australia. It was a very much a numbers game before um, if you were lucky enough to be on the list, you might get some funding to do something, you know, that, that helps support you. But now it's becoming far more equitable and a lot more people have access. Hence, we have a waiting list because there are now many people who have received individual funding that will enable them to attend a place like Arts Project or to go to school, or to have someone take them shopping. I mean, the range of supports is is fairly broad. However, my however I qualify, mm-hmm. is that the NDIS is still having a little trouble broadly recognising that being an artist can actually be employment and a career. Mm-hmm. And certainly when artists come to Arts Project, they come to work. While they might not get paid an hourly rate, when their work sells, they'll receive 60% of the proceeds. Mm -hmm. And it's very difficult 
to convince some planners who write people's plans that, that an employment goal to be an artist is actually even feasible or possible. Um, for instance, probably three of our top-selling artists who earn significant amounts of money still don't have an employment goal in their NDIS plan to be an artist because the particular planner just couldn't see how that could possibly be appropriate or right. Yeah, I think, you know, even with any artist anywhere, I think it's always a debate of whether is that a valued uh, profession or, you know, but, like, when you see people, especially, you know, not they d- disabled or not, um, getting into art, you know, it's really... Yeah, yeah, and a lot of, I think a lot of people ask when they go, oh, is this therapy, is yeah. this art therapy? And, and while we don't deny for a minute that making art is therapeutic for anyone that mm-hmm. does it, uh, it's not what we operate. We operate as a working contemporary mm-hmm. art studio and our aim as an organisation is to place the work of arts project artists into the broader contemporary art sector. So it's very much about inclusion, inclusion in what else is happening. And we do that through um, having a range of relationships and partnerships with mainstream contemporary art organisations, from the NGV to curators to smaller um, more, you know, experimental galleries. So while we've got our exhibitions on at Art Project at the moment and Femme Affinity touring, we've got artists, individual artists who have work in shows in uh, Bayside Gallery in Brighton, mm-hmm. um, in the Wangaratta Contemporary Textile Award, in the uh, Centre for Contemporary Photography in Fitzroy, at the Cosmopolitan in Sydney. And we also... Uh, are very proactive in taking our artists to places where new people can see what they're doing. So we'll be a part of the Affordable Arts Fair mm-hmm. in um, Melbourne in the first week of September and we'll also be part of Spring 1883, which is like an art fair in a hotel in Sydney in the Establishment Hotel in the second week of September. So we keep ourselves fairly busy. Yes. <laughs> And um, it's all about exposure and people getting to know work from different artists in a range of different spaces. Yeah, I think it's incredible. You know, all over Australia, all over the world, it's, yeah, really, really amazing stuff. Um, thank you so much for talking to us this morning, Sue. Um, a so, great pleasure. Um, so I think I Slip My Tongue is open until the 14th of September, if I'm yes. correct. Yeah, and that's yes, showing on High Street at Northcote at APA. That's right, 24 High Street, Northcote, and we're open between 9 and 5 on weekdays and 10 and 3.30 on Saturdays. Perfect. So and if any public gallery, anyone can come in any time. Exactly right, yeah, the beauty of it. Um, if anyone wants to find out any more information, it's www.artsproject.org.au. Thanks so much for talking to us this morning, Sue. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. The Renegade Pub Football League proudly presents its inaugural Pride Round, Paint in Victoria Park, Rainbow, on Saturday, August 24th. Celebrating diversity in pub football, this free community event offers a laid-back afternoon of gender-inclusive Aussie Rules football, alongside DJs and a charity barbecue. Saturday, August 24th, gates open at 12.30. For more information, including Pub Footy's August and September fixture, visit www.rpfl.com.au. The Renegade Pub Football League is a 3CR supporter.
The Australian Plants Expo is a huge native plant fair with displays, books, garden pots, giftware and activities for children, along with talks, demonstrations, workshops, refreshments and door prizes. The Australian Plants Expo, Saturday the 14th and Sunday the 15th of September, 10am to 4pm at the Eltham Community and Reception Centre, 801 Main Road, Eltham. Adults $5, concessions $4 and children free. Contact Australian Plant Society Yarra Yarra via email on apsyarrayarra at gmail.com or call 0430 513 433 for more information. The Australian Plant Society Yarra Yarra is a 3CR supporter. Victoria's roadside drug testing program is not about road safety. In last year's governmental inquiry into drug law reform, it was noted that Victoria's RDT program is falling behind on latest evidence regarding impairment. Currently, Victoria Police can charge people for detection of either cannabis, amphetamines or MDMA. But those detections do not correlate with impairment. Impaired drivers should be removed from the roads and that's why we're urging an inquiry into Victoria's RDT scheme to ensure that the resources that are currently employed to make our roads safer are being properly used to make our roads safer. Help us refocus road safety onto what makes roads safe. Sign the e-petition parliament.vic.gov.au forward slash council forward slash petitions. And look for the Inquiry into Drug Driving Reform, Petition 117. A 3CR supporter. And you're listening to 3CR. Wonderful. And so you were just listening before to Sue Ruff from Arts Project Australia. And now we have our next interview with Janali Jones. So Janali is a Indigenous author, a Krauthun Kalong woman of the Gunai Nation, and she wrote a recently released book called My Father's Shadow. And so she was awarded the, the Black and White Indigenous Writing Fellowship based on an earlier manuscript of the book. And we've got her on the air. Janali, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for coming along. Um, so for our listeners who haven't read or heard about the book, what is My Father's Shadow about? It's a uh, young adult mystery thriller. Um, it's set in the Blue Mountains, just outside of Sydney. Uh, and the protagonist is a seventeen-year-old um, girl, uh, Kaya. And her father uh, was a whistleblower, um, and um, he was sort of set to give evidence in a trial. Um, but uh, the people who were going to give evidence uh, against came after him, and he was he was killed. And so. Kaya and her mother sort of flee into the Blue Mountains to go into hiding. Yeah, interesting. And so, in terms of the the book, did you how did you sort of go about like research when you're talking about like whistleblowers and everything? Was there much research in how you sort of developed the book? Yeah, I was inspired by a few um, real events that have mm. happened in terms of witnesses that have been in killed have been killed. And I'm a lawyer, so so my background in that went into that as well. Mm. Um, there was a case in particular in the United States, uh, murder of a doctor um, whose name was Brian Stidham, and it was a sort of similar thing where he, his boss was um, over-prescribing medications and involved in illegal activities, and he was a whistleblower, and um, his boss actually hired a hitman to, to, mm-hmm. to 
you know, kill him. And it was just, it sounds like such a crazy story, but, you know, these things actually happen. I thought that was fascinating and that became part of the book. Yeah, absolutely. Um, another sort of key part of the book is uh, Kaya's relationship with her mother, and that sort of like comes out as quite an important part throughout the novel. So why did you decide to focus a lot on this specific relationship? Uh, well, when her father was alive, Kay and her father were quite close. And with him gone, you know, there was a bit of distance between her and her mother. But now that they're in hiding, they're in very close quarters. And um, her mother has these strict rules because they're so paranoid about people coming after them. And, you know, they're not allowed to... Kay is not allowed to talk to anyone. She's not allowed to contact people from Sydney or let anyone know where they are and so there's a bit of tension there between her and her mother because you know Kay's teenager she kind of gets quite bored living in this isolated mountain town and she just wants to go back to having a normal life and go back to school but her mother has these really strict rules which she um, obviously rebels against mm. <laughs> that's what teenagers do <laughs> um, so yeah it's, it's, a, it's a complicated relationship because obviously her mother's all she has left, but at the same time, you know, she doesn't agree with how her mother's handling everything. Mm-hmm. Sounds like classic teenager behaviour. Yeah. <laughs> uh, another kind of recurring theme in the book is the connections to one culture and the kind of desire to understand their history. And so as you were sort of starting to write this topic, what did you sort of learn about just generally how people connect to a culture or their sort of their, their grandparents' culture or through their history? Yeah, well, I wanted to um, have the cultural aspect as a more subtle element of the book. And for Kaya, she's kind of at a point in her life where she's questioning a lot of things. And her mother and her grandmother had a falling out. And her mother's kind of turned her back on her culture and isn't really interested in, you know, keeping up traditions or anything like that. And so for Kaya, she's kind of lost out on that opportunity to, you know, learn her culture and experience it. Um, And her grandmother was very keyed into all of that. So there's definitely fragmentation there in the family. And one of the people that Kaya meets in the mountains is a boy called Eric, or he's a young man, and he's a Korean-Australian. And he his experience of culture as a Korean-Australian is in, in contrast to hers, where he still gets to experience it despite living in a different country. And, and I think that kind of makes Kaya reflect on what culture means to her. And I also wanted to, you know, represent uh, Aboriginal Australians that that aren't as connected, that aren't those kind of stereotypes of mm. um, what people think of you know, Aboriginal Australians. And, you know, most of the population of Aboriginals in Australia actually live on the East Coast. So, um, you know, different ideas of what culture looks like. I wanted to kind of represent that in the book. Uh, Jamila, this is Ivan here in the studio. Uh, good morning. Um, it sounds like a really amazing book, and I was reading a little bit of it, and it came off as really accessible. I mean, often, especially in schools, we read a lot of uh, American or English literature, and we don't have Australian stories which are based, you know, as you said, in the Blue Mountains, around ideas such as identity, cultural identity that are all young teenage Australians face um, and also uh, with the whistleblower aspect kind of you know current affairs that are happening right here and right now this it, it sounds really like it's um, very accessible and a very 
new sort of novel, what do you think is the significance of creating stories kind of from Australian culture or from different authors uh, for for kids? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, it um, kind of reflects our, our upbringing as Australians. I think it, particularly in uh, major cities, you know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of multiculturalism, which when we're, when we're young, we don't really think about it that much. But when we're adults, I think that we reflect on it a lot more. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's important to see those, you know, that those different kinds of experiences um, reflected. And I think that's very empowering as well. Um, and uh, as an, you know, a young Aboriginal um, girl growing up, I didn't see a lot of myself reflected in, you know, books or TV, film. It was few and far between. So whenever I did come across something, I really latched onto, onto that. And, mm. you know, growing up with my mother's side of the family that was non-Indigenous, um, that kind of helped me feel like I had a place in Australia and you know I I think that that does that for people of you know different cultures as well to see um, themselves reflected in that sort of tapestry that, of Australia. And I find it really interesting also this discussion of um, as you say uh, identity kind of on a, on a spectrum almost sort of thing and the fact that we don't exist as stereotypes. We really are, have a very complex relationship with our cultural upbringings mm. or the culture around us, especially in modern-day Australia. Um, could you kind of, yeah, give us a bit of information about that? What was going through your mind when you were writing this? Were you thinking, oh, I'm going to write a thriller or, oh, I want to write something for young Australians? What was your thoughts? Um, I think initially I didn't really know where it was going. I just sort of <laughs> had a <laughs> an image of these people like driving along these mm. windy mountain roads and if people have been to the Blue Mountains there's like the normal there's like the main road where people the tourists go through Katoomba that mm-hmm. side but there's also this northern road where you have like the Blue Mountains uh, the Botanic Gardens and it's a lot less travelled and um, so that it's a lot more dangerous sort of road and that was just the kind of image that I had and I Mm. explored and built from there but um i don't know a lot of the aboriginal uh literature that i read it kind of does go into a little bit more sort of typical what you might expect from reading those kinds of books so i wanted to try and do something that was a little bit different as well Absolutely, and you've written, um, just this is my own personal question as a writer, um, you've written short stories and poetry previously. Uh, why, why did you choose the genre of a thriller? Did, as you said, you've got that beautiful imagery of the Blue Mountains, but um, what, was it kind of fun playing with a new genre? Yeah, definitely. I actually have uh, written a couple of manuscripts that uh, I'm working on, and they're all like speculative fiction. They're all fantasy. So it's kind of a surprise to me as well that my <laughs> debut novel is not fantasy <laughs> no one has magic powers <laughs> um, but it, I was kind of drawn to the you know sort of mystery elements of it mm. because uh, while she's up there Taya is trying to um, recall some um, memories that she has lost because she inadvertently became involved in her dad's um, affairs and and you know she because of the experience she's experiencing um, PTSD. So she's trying to kind of piece everything together herself so that she can take her father's place and give evidence so that um, with the end goal being that she can move back to Sydney and get her life back. So that 
kind of piecing together of what's happened and and solving the the mystery, I was really drawn to that. And mm. it's quite a difficult thing to do as an author. Sort of, <laughs> it's sort of like crime fiction where you're fed clues and yeah. try and work it out. And yeah, some people I speak spoken to have been able to guess the ending, but a lot of people say that it's been a surprise. <laughs> Glad that it's you know stumped some people. Absolutely. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Janelle, for your time. Um, the book's already out, I believe, and it's already in good bookstores. Yes. yes. So, if any of our listeners who are keen to read a bit more, it's a great book. Um, it's already out and available. But thank you so much, Janelle, for your time, and good luck with the rest of the book thank and you. future writing. Thank you very much. So that was Janelle Jones. Just speaking about her recent young adult book called My Father's Shadow. Yeah, um, we're going to bump into a song. This is actually another slow one, and then I figured we could play a um, your later <laughs> funky one, <laughs> Rob. Uh, so this is just Cherry Colored Funk by the Cut Twins. One moment.
Victoria's roadside drug testing program is not about road safety. In last year's governmental inquiry into drug law reform, it was noted that Victoria's RDT program is falling behind on latest evidence regarding impairment. Currently, Victoria Police can charge people for detection of either cannabis, amphetamines or MDMA. But those detections do not correlate with impairment. Impaired drivers should be removed from the roads and that's why we're urging an inquiry into Victoria's RDT scheme to ensure that the resources that are currently employed to make our roads safer are being properly used to make our roads safer. Help us refocus road safety onto what makes roads safe. Sign the e-petition parliament.vic.gov.au forward slash council forward slash petitions and look for the Inquiry into Drug Driving Reform, Petition 117. A 3CR supporter. This is our country. We've never forgotten where we've come from. Or who we are. We keep our culture strong. Now it's time to come together. Talk as equals. And write our own future. This is our country. And this is our time. Treaty, it's time. Enroll now for the First People's Assembly of Victoria election. Authorised by the Victorian Treaty Advancement Commission, Melbourne. And you're listening to 3CR. Now we have our next interview centred around the number 350. What is 350? 350 means climate safety. To preserve a livable planet, scientists tell us that we must reduce the amount of carbon uh, CO2 in the atmosphere from its current level of 400 parts per million to 350 parts per million. Um, that's now that's taken from the 350. <laughs> Website. Uh, we've actually got Glenn on the line from the organisation to kind of tell us a little bit more. Good morning, Glenn. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, so, Glenn, we have a lot of climate interviews on the show, but this week I kind of wanted to switch it up a little bit with a more positive tone. And I yeah. thought 350 does that in spades with the idea of, hey, let's not look at what's, what, what's going to, you know, climate catastrophe. Let's look at what we can possibly do or what we need yeah. to reach. <laughs> um, yeah. Could you kind of... Give us a little bit more info about, um, information about 350. Why, why focus on this, this number and this objective? Yeah, look, there's, there's quite a few reasons. Um, one of the powers of the Title 350 is that every time you have a chat about the organisation, you get to start with a conversation about what it means. Mm, absolutely. And as you've said, it's, uh, it's about uh, a scientific concept of how many particles of CO2 are in the atmosphere. But the real power is that that works no matter what your language is, whether it's Urdu or um, or Russian or French or um, uh, uh, one of the Pacific Island nations. Um, 350 works uh, throughout the 178 countries we work in. Um, we're largely a volunteer-led organisation, and we mm-hmm. came into fruition a bit over 10 years ago um, as... Uh, one of the world's most experienced climate campaigners, a guy called Bill McKibben, um, realised that uh, people weren't getting active to push for change on climate change uh, from governments and from corporations and from individuals. And so he and a group of university students from Vermont started to get people around the world uh, excited about getting active and being uh, strong, active citizens who um, precipitate change. Uh, their first action saw 15,000 separate actions around the world. Wow. Um, 
uh, and harnessing millions of people who, like most of us, have sat on the couch feeling more and more miserable mm. about the science of climate change and that nothing's happening. And since that time, it's been the mobilisation of vast numbers of people who've gotten off their couch, gotten active, been trained and supported and provided all the information uh, available, um, given some guidance on how they can have most impact. That's really made a big change. And, and the, the biggest impact we've had as a movement is on a campaign called Divestment, mm-hmm. where we have seen um, uh, more than eight trillion US dollars, that's more than 11 trillion Australian dollars, um, taken away from investment in fossil fuels. Absolutely. So the concept of that program is to divest money away from fossil fuels into, would it be non-renewables? Oh, sorry, <laughs> into renewables? Uh, yeah, or, or just uh, away from fossil fuels. Um, okay. you know, people, people could put that money into hospitals or into, into whatever. It's just that that money is no longer available for fossil fuel companies to build new projects. So last year, Shell, one mm-hmm. of the biggest fossil fuel companies on earth, admitted in their annual report that they were now finding it very difficult to get project finance because of the divestment movement, the, the wow. withdrawal of trillions of dollars from their pool of investment funds. Absolutely. And talking about kind of um, some of the campaigns, the no fossil fuels campaigns and this, this idea of the divestment fund, um, I found a few objectives on 350.org, which was calling for a fast and just transition to 100% renewable energy for all, no yep. new fossil fuel projects anywhere, and not a penny more for dirty energy. Um, what are these kind of these demands almost? Uh, where, do they, where do they come from, from this divestment Yeah, well, divestment fits into those demands. So um, we do need, we know, without any shadow of a doubt, we do need to rapidly transition away Mm. from oil, coal and gas. They are the primary causes of human-induced climate change. And the quicker we stop those, the less damage we're doing and the less work we have to to do to adapt to the changing climate. Mm. So um, the... There are multiple ways in which uh, companies and governments continue to extract fossil fuels. Um, for example, through uh, private finance, which is where our divestment campaign works in, but also through public finance, you know, subsidies and direct investment by governments into fossil fuels. Um, that's another area that needs to be um, completely turned around. So that money should no longer go to fossil fuels, and preferably, if it's going to be spent on anything, it should be going to... Uh, actions that help on climate change, such as renewables, but also the money we need to adapt to a changing climate. And addressing the fast and just transition, for for me that kind of echoes the sentiments of the Green New Deal. Was that kind of the idea you guys were going Uh, for? Absolutely, and we work closely, our US team and our Canadian team, on the Green New Deal concept in North America. Um, Look, it's really important that as we do this rapid transition that we make sure that the people who are most impacted are, are, are supported as much as possible. It's not reasonable for us to suddenly say, shut down, you know. Give up your the, jobs, move on. All, yeah. all the coal mines in the Hunter Valley and the Latrobe Valley and have no solution. So, mm. um, you know, Victorians would have seen with the closing of the Hazelbrook um, power station um, on a very short turnaround the massive impact that had on people in the Latrobe Valley. Um, Here up in New South Wales, where I'm based, uh, AGL, the biggest um, emitter in Australia, 
have a five-year plan to close their Liddell power station. Now, that means that there's five years for all those employees, all those contractors, to find other work options, to get new training or to relocate if required. And we believe that there needs to be an appropriate amount of time, appropriate amount of resources from the private company and from the public to ensure that those communities can make a transition that's fair and just. Absolutely. And one thing I found interesting about three, uh, 350 sorry, is that um, it said we need to remove the social licence, the political licence and the money that kind of justifies this. Could you kind of talk about this idea of breaking down social licensing for me quickly on political yeah. licence? Yeah, look, there's, there's many, many examples here. Like I, I lived in the Hunter Valley for a decade and the coal industry has a very powerful social licence there. Um, the first ever exports out of Australia were coal from Newcastle in the Hunter Valley in New South Wales. And that was in uh, 1802. So there is more than 200 years of deep social connection in that region to the coal mining industry, and that is going. And that's one of those things that's going to take a long time um, uh, to to transition through. But there are also plenty of examples where um, companies gain social license through, for example, sponsoring events or sponsoring sporting mm. teams where they're using oh, their logo okay. and their marketing budget to increase their what's called a social licence or the acceptability of that company in the community. Um, and they're doing that um, in order to continue, for example, to gain public subsidies for their industry gotcha. at a time when we know that we should be moving out of that industry as far as, as is um, reasonable and just. Absolutely, okay. And uh, 350 Org, as you mentioned, does include quite a range of different people, which is fantastic. The, the movement's so accessible. Um, I noticed on your website there's got things like uh, fossil-free councils and universities. Yeah. Um, these incentives, what, what, what do you kind of offer to these uh, to councils and universities that kind of sign up? Well, look, um, uh, this is part of that massive divestment movement, and Australia has the highest percentage of local government who've divested from fossil fuels. Australian local governments have a lot of money. Um, uh, you know, uh, some of the local governments we've worked with have hundreds of millions of dollars under investment. Um, and we have worked with them to help them take those investments away from fossil fuels and into uh, more suitable investment portfolios. Uh, what we offer is firstly the idea um, it tends to be precipitated by someone who lives in a certain local government area is worried about climate change, contact 350. We talk to them. They think um, getting their council to divest would be a great idea. Wow. We work with them on how to do that. They build local community support. They go and engage with the local council, and then they get the local council to divest. And what we provide for the council is um, the links to all the other councils who have done mm. this so that in terms of the structural work that's required to do that divestment, it's complex, it's difficult. Yeah. Um, so general managers in one council can talk to a general manager in another council. The chief financial officer can do the same and they can start to um, uh, get rid of uh, those investments in their portfolios that include fossil fuel. And um, and so we've walked a, through that whole process. Yeah, a bit of a and, DIY kind of uh, IKEA kit kind of thing of how yeah, to... Um, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And it has to be driven by the local community and... And, you know, we at 350 Australia and, and 350 around the world, mm-hmm. we are driven by volunteers. In Australia, we only have six staff. So wow, six it's, staff. It's actually the thousands of people <laughs> who 
we have 60,000 supporters who get out there and do this stuff. Um, you know, in the first half of this year, we had more than 200 different actions and activities by locals, Fantastic. all volunteers, who mm. got off their backsides and went out and did something useful. They did film screenings, they did public meetings, they did rallies, Absolutely. they did actions, they did art shows, they did you name it. It's, it was incredible, and it's and, and our job is to help facilitate, facilitate that, give, that yeah. give them gotcha. support, um, answer their questions, and the other part is connecting. Like with councils and activists, um, it's making those connections so that when you're a council looking at divesting, divesting you're now one of dozens who have... Mm divested around the country and um, in WA for example um, one third of people in WA live in a council that has divested from fossil fuels. Wow that, that, that's, that's quite an amazing achievement um, and I, I have to admit I do love the fact that on your website you have a tab for either helping people start their own campaign or even find a yeah. campaign because as you said it's really easy to sit on the couch and kind of feel overwhelmed yeah. and stressed. It's, um, and so it's, it's lovely that you're making it so accessible to get up and actually have action. Um, now, we are running out of time today, so if I could just get kind of, if anyone is interested, how they'd go about getting involved, maybe your website or so, or where we yeah, can follow you. Yeah, come to our website. It's uh, au, or you can email me directly. Uh, my email is glenn, G-L-E-N, at... 350.org.au. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Glenn, for coming on today and telling us a little bit more about 350.org. Absolutely a pleasure. Thank you. And we'll be right back. El Dorado, the story of Scudiez, is the story of a fight of a small community in northern Greece against a multinational-owned gold mine project that threatens their homes and lives. A grassroots movement is fighting against the destruction of the environment caused by the extraction methods and for democratic control over the most crucial basic resources, water, air and land. It shows Greece in the era of social and economic crisis where the rights of communities and the environment collide with big business and profit. This screening will be followed by a performance by Bandidas playing classic Rembetica songs of love and loss, pain and pleasure at Café Gummo, 711 High Street, Thornbury on Saturday the 10th of August at 7.30pm. Entry will be by gold coin donation and all funds will go to 3CR. And you're listening to 3CR. Now, next up, we'll be talking to Annette from the Independent Peaceful Australian Network on their reaction to the report last week um, that revealed Australia's, shipping, uh, Australia's part in shipping weapons to Saudi Arabia. The significance of this comes at a time when Saudi Arabia is engaged in conflict uh, within Yemen, and the implication of this Australian um, shipping is that these weapons are likely on their way to add fuel literally to the fire. Now, we have Annette on the line with us. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So Australia announced um, a few years ago that it had a future in weapons development. Uh, and I was saying to my co-host, there's no surprise that this story has kind of surfaced out of that. Uh, what do you think the consequences of Australia facilitating and subsidising this transfer of weapons is and, uh, like, coming now kind of thing? Well, uh, I think we've really got to look at the overall situation mm-hmm. um, that Australia is aiming to be one of the top ten arms and manufacturers in the world. Mm. Now, that was announced um, 18 months ago by when Mr Turnbull was the Prime Minister and that created a lot of anxiety and 
anger, really, yeah. that uh, Australia's reputation um, could be seriously damaged by um, it aiming to, to produce its uh, or improve its, te- its uh, economy along those lines. So, you know, what we've seen in uh, the revelations, really, about uh, our arms exports to Saudi Arabia are just adding to that reputational damage. Absolutely, and the government has stated that it doesn't know how these weapons are going to be will be used. That's kind of its defence at the moment. That sounds to me like a bit of a blatant lie, and has been called up by the UK High Court as you know, kind of a little bit faulty. Um, what, what's kind of IPAN's statement around that? Yeah, IPAN, as you probably know, has just had its um, very successful na- national conference in Darwin, mm. and uh, a strong theme within the conference was on the cost of our militaristic progress or process that seems to be uh, getting stronger mm-hmm. and the impact that that has on how, our, how we're viewed by people in our region mm-hmm. but also international law and what has been happening with the sales of uh, uh, these weapons, these remote weapons systems to Saudi Arabia, uh, a country that's uh, been... Oh, challenged for the role that it's playing in Yemen along international humanitarian uh, law, that it implicates Australia in breaking those laws that have been set at the United Nations Mm -hmm. level. And very often we will hear our leaders in this country talking about the rules-based order. And in fact, Australia is not adhering to international law Mm particularly on this matter. So um, we're very opposed to this um, allocation of money to the EFIC, the Export Finance Corporation, and EFIC is one of the agencies that supported EOS in developing these remote weapons systems that are the hot topic really at the moment. Absolutely, and as you mentioned, this does violate international law um, stated in the Arms Trade Treaty, which Australia is a signatory and ratified party of. Um, now, Australia kind of lacks a regulatory body to call politicians out, or, or it, it seems as if our government can just get away with this. Where, where does that kind of leave us? <coughs> it really leaves us with the media to act as um, mm. uh, mouthpiece so that we, <laughs> in the community, can know. Have those ABC revelations, and in fact, if we didn't have groups like the um, Save the Children and Oxfam and Human Rights Lawyers and IPAN and others forming this coalition, the Australian Arms Control Coalition, to really do the investigative work and to be in touch with journalists so that they can let the people of Australia know just what's happening in our name. Um, you know, we really, as a country, need to be thinking about our, our reputation and how do we want to be seen internationally as that's, a supporter of yeah, Saudi Arabia that kills journalists and, um, and uh, has, has led to the deaths of... Has some very you know, backward human rights practices. Yeah. Absolutely, and uh, just just discussing kind of, as you said, we've only got the media and really uh, us to look after to, to get this information out. Um, freedom of request has been submitted in the past, um, but we haven't seen anything to come out of that. As And in the meantime, 16 kind of permits have been granted between 2016 and 2017 with military exports to Saudi Arabia. That's not normal process, is it, the fact that we're not being able to access this information? Well, 
No, the excuse is commercial incompetence. That means oh. they're prioritising um, the profits from these arms sales over human rights. They're prioritising profits mm. over the public's right to know. Um, I think that says a lot about our government. Absolutely. It does. Um, hi, Annette. It's just speaking here. I guess. Um, I just had a quick question for you as well. So um, Australia has actually acknowledged that they'll spend $200 million between now and 2028 as part of a plan to become the 10th largest arms exporter in the world. Um, we're currently ranked at 20th. Um, this also comes at a time when Pompeo has said, we hope Australia will partner with us on some of the most pressing foreign policy changes of our time, like efforts to stabilise Syria, um, keep Afghanistan free of terror and confront Islamic Republic of Iran's unprovoked attacks. This is, quote, Pompeo. Um, with all of this, you know, out in the open and also, you know, our um, further engagement in the trade um, stability with China, um, do you think that we will expect more of this sort of thing with um, arms dealing to Saudi Arabia, you know, especially when it's such a crucial time in the Yemeni war, like it's been nearly four years now. Um, do you think we're going to expect more arms dealing, more involvement in, you know, foreign conflicts in this area or what? Well, uh, <coughs> we seem to be on that trajectory, don't we? Um, <laughs> and, uh, and our very close joined at the hip relationship with the United yes. States means that we are... Uh, we're getting carried along with that, um, and I guess from a government's point of view, the, the apart from profits, there is the uh, perceived need to stay in good with the mm, United States. Absolutely. So we've got a long history of just not necessarily being begged by the United States to join them, but Australia begging to be included <laughs> in activities, military activities that the US is involved in. Is there anything that IPAN's really pushing to do to kind of avoid these or is it sort of just a come as it may when it happens that, you know, get it, fight it then or is there, you know, or is it just you can't really? No, look, I think um, IPAN's involvement in the uh, coalition mm. about arms sales is, is a really important area for us to be working in. Um, we are looking at, post-IPAN conference, mm. uh, going down the path of running a public inquiry into the costs of our militarism, and that includes our relationship with the United States. Mm -hmm. The inquiry is aimed at uh, uh, listening and communicating with uh, people in all walks of life in Australia, yes. gathering information about the impacts of our militarism to them, whether it's um, domestic violence units not getting funded, whether it's legal aid being uh, funding decreasing, uh, foreign aid decreasing, a whole range of areas mm -hmm. that are so important for Australia to be uh, seen to be leading and... Um, the responsibility to our people, uh, we'd like those findings to be documented, to be um, reported on by a, a level, um, a high-level team of um, experts and for that report to be released uh, to government in the near future. So that's, that's the direction that we're taking. I think anyone who's listening... Um, to, would be really good if they could get in touch with us uh, uh, on that initiative. Mm. Uh, we want to work with as many 
sectors of the community as possible. As you say, post um, kind of your, your big forum that you hosted on the weekend, that sounds like a fantastic outcome and we'll definitely have to ch- check in with you and kind of see how you're going. Well, Annette, thank you so much for coming and talking to us today. I think, as, as you said it yourself, we rely on the media and organisations such as IPAN to bring these stories to us. We're not going to hear them otherwise um, and this is one which we're going to need to follow, I think. Great. Thank Definitely. you for your time. Thank you. Bye. Bye. And you're listening to 3CR. Now we're coming up to 8.25. We're going to quickly quickly play um, <laughs> a funk song. Is thought, that right, Rob? Yeah, get, get a bit of a spring in your step <laughs> to finish you. off uh, our show. It's Alleluia by Robson George and Lincoln Olivetti. All right. We'll be back after that. And that was a little bit of funk, really. Yeah, a bit of spring in your step for Wednesday morning. <laughs> Absolutely. We're going to go do a quick run through. So we started at 7.30. We did, yes. We spoke to Sue Roth, mm-hmm. um, who is the... We spoke to Sue Roth, who is the ex- ex- Executive Director of Arts Projects Australia. She spoke to us about the artists in her space uh, with intellectual dis- disabilities, um, all the work that they're doing, and, um, yeah, all the upcoming projects and projects that they have right now. And then we spoke with Janali Jones, who's an Indigenous young adult author, with her debut book called My Father's Shadow. Sounds pretty great. It sounds really good. Um, 8 o'clock we had a Enviro story with 350.org organisation. Uh, so we were talking to Glenn, just kind of about what 350 is. Pretty amazing international organisation. Mm. And then just up last, we were talking uh, to Annette from the Independent Peaceful Australian Network <laughs> Ding. Got it. Um, on the released information last week that um, Australia has been shipping weapons to Saudi Arabia, mm-hmm. which, again, 
huge implications for Saudi Arabia seeing as they're engaged in conflict in Yemen. Mm-hmm. And we'll be definitely following up with that story, I think. We've I got think so. Yeah, a bit of interest. Um, just finishing up the day, I just wanted to say uh, we do have an action happening today. So there will be a March Against Adani happening at 10 o'clock in Melbourne, and it's hosted by Aqua Supply uh, Co., so it is a company-led pro- protest. But if you're interested in boogalooing down there, that's at Victoria, Parliament of Victoria, mm-hmm. 10 o'clock this morning. Otherwise, uh, again, on Friday, there's the Vic University Climate Walkout. And for any students listening, I thoroughly encourage you to head along to this. I mean, it's great to think, oh, I've got to go to uni, I've got classes and stuff like that. But in 12 years, classes are going to be seriously affected. The whole Mm -hmm. life's going to be seriously affected. And if we don't make our voices loud... What's going to happen? What's going to happen? Some yeah. terrible stuff. So, yeah, if you if you can spare the time, that's 1 p.m. at the State Library. Um, what are we grateful for this week? Go. Oh, I'm going to go super Melbourneian and say coffee. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. I'm going to say I've had a cold the last week, and it means I can't exercise, and I'm just, like, craving just, like, a bit <sighs> of bit of exercise to keep me going. So I'm going to say I'm gra- grateful for exercise. Okay, okay. Um, I'm going to say Edward William Cole, who is... <laughs> A historical figure of Melbourne. Uh, he was known for having crazy arcades in the earlier, mm-hmm. early 20th century, late 19th. Um, but he sounds super cool. I'm researching him for uni at the moment. Mm-hmm. And he's just, he's a sick dude. He, um, he was out there when the white uh, Australian policy was written up in 1901. He was out there being like, this is racist mm-hmm. uh, and horrible. And like, yeah, like people didn't like, you know, had a lot of discrimination towards Chinese communities. So he opened up a Chinese tea shop in his arcade wow. to be like, Screw that. That's <laughs> <laughs> so he's a cool dude. Anyway, um, enjoy your Wednesday. Next up is Stick Together and a big shout out to Earth Matters that started the show. Talk to you next week. Broadband return. Playing the Tote Band Room, Sunday, September 1st. Having completed an 11-city Japanese tour, they now launch their Japanese release album along with US lip vinyl. Very special guests are Japanese label mates, 20 Gilders, featuring Mitsuru Tabata of Acid Mother's Temple, Light Magnetic, the new band with members from The Scientists and Paradise Motel, plus competition team. Broadband, The Tote, Sunday, September 1st. Tickets, $10 pre-sale from thetotehotel.oztix.com.au. Kazumuwan Records is a 3CR supporter. 3CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall. You can check them out at nibs.org.au. And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03 9419 8377.